Hey, how you doing? My name is Nolan. I'm from Past Gas by Donut Media. We are the world's number one automotive podcast. That's right. We're a storytelling show. This week, it's part three of our history of Mazda. Last week, we talked about the rotary engine and how they started a little bit of racing. This week, they got a lot more serious with it. They needed to make a big splash in the world stage. They decided to go to Le Mans over there in France and prove that they could keep up with the Europeans and the Americans. They did have a hard time with it, though. It's very intriguing. The rotary engine we talked about last week had some challenges. This is for the real Mazda heads and anybody who's curious about automotive history in general. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Pass gas. I'll see you there. Michael Schumacher. For motorsports fans, the iconic German driver needs no introduction. There's perhaps no one in the history of Formula One that is as respected and revered as Michael Schumacher. Pirelli CEO Marco Tronchetti Provera once described Schumacher as, quote, perfection coupled with a great ability to concentrate. Journalist and ghostwriter Sabine Kem insists that, quote, Michael Schumacher redefined the professional image of a racing driver and has set new standards. In his quest for perfection, he spared neither himself nor his team, driving them to the greatest successes. He is admired all over the world for his leadership qualities. And Toto Wolff, King Mercedes himself, remembers Schumacher as, quote, the most iconic race driver. And yet, despite the reverence his name invokes, Schumacher is not without his own set of controversies. Today on Pass Gas, is Michael Schumacher, known for his perfectionism and intimidating persona, the greatest of all time. This is episode 100 of Past Gas. Past Gas Podcast. It's about cars, it's not about ports. If this is your first time listening to Past Gas, welcome. Uh, you came it's in a at, good one to yeah, start with. You came in at the right time. <laughs> I'm your host, Nolan, joined by your other hosts. We got Joe Weber. Uh, what's up, Wengwing Nation? I'm here for you guys. <laughs> and James Pumphrey. Uh, I'm a power baby. <laughs> <laughs> 100 episodes, dudes. 100. I uh, Let's keep it 100, hey? Huh? Yeah. <laughs> hey, just, let's just make a promise for this one. Yeah. Let's just keep it 100. <laughs> let's copy that, chief. I wish. <laughs> that was me trying to keep it 100. Damn, dude, that was cool, man. <laughs> that was cool. I could tell like you're relaxed and you're you're having like a good time, you know? Yeah. I I loved every minute of that. <laughs> like you 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 know my name is James. And like you're like, yeah, chief, which is tight. <laughs> The my favorite meme of all time is the strong guys emailing each other. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anytime there's like you know, a bros hanging out, I love to drop a little chief in there, <laughs> mm-hmm. or boss. Boss is a good one. My favorite nickname for my friends right now is King. King is great. Yeah. King is great. It's like I say it ironically, mm-hmm. but not for long. It's gonna be sincere pretty <laughs> soon, and I'm gonna hate it. Yep. Yeah, that always happens, oh, yeah. doesn't it? But congratulations, Kings. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations to Nolan, King One. Thank you. Yeah, mostly Nolan. Nolan, <laughs> mostly. Uh, Nolan's been on the most episodes of the 100. That's true. Yeah, I, I joined around like 20, 
I think. Uh-huh. So I'm I'm a, still a rook. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're our you're our baby. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I, I really can't believe it's been 100 episodes. Um, I feel like we just started the show like two months ago. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know, man. It's been a pretty long year. <laughs> It feels, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 it feels like episode like 400 to me very very energetic in the in the studio today I, we're not in the studio we are still recording separately but eventually we'll Dude, get that it's an audio that. format man be whatever we want we're actually uh in a huge studio uh <laughs> it looks uh, oh it looks awesome dude Whoa. they have a fridge this oh. is great <laughs> That's the, the most specific thing you could come up with. Yeah, there's a fridge, and I'm sitting on a couch. And Quick, it's like, what do studios have? Uh, it's fridge. Free, free water. Oh, it's not just like a, it's a fancy fridge. It's a fancy fridge. It's got like one of those glass doors on it, so you can Ooh. see the drinks inside. Which that's how you know. That's how you know it's fancy. This couch I'm on is like a little hot. I'm not really digging that. This is a weird fantasy, dude. Are you supposed to, we're supposed to be talking about how this fake studio we're in, how cool it is. All right. I'm just saying. Why is the couch hot? Like was the like couch a, is hot. Was the like couch a is guy hot. sitting on it? Yeah. I, uh, yeah. I sat down. and was like kind of warm already. I didn't like that. That was very off-putting. But I'm trying to get. I'm, I'm in it. Trying to have uh-huh. a good time. Yeah. Um. I'm just gonna go th- vibe through it. You know. This is episode 100. Over the course of this show, what do you think is the biggest thing you've learned from doing this podcast? And this is an open query to to anybody. Um, well, yeah, I think the biggest takeaway of after this 100th episode is that our fans are what make this possible. And we just want to thank everyone who listens to this podcast for being a real one and, uh, you know, responding and commenting and giving us feedback and i think that's kind of what keeps us going Mm -hmm. i don't know about you guys but that's really fun to see like people respond to it and even call us out i love when people call us out and be like well actually this happened and it's like oh we're yeah that did happen we should have it's very um, fun getting um dms and tagged in posts with quotes from the show uh because most of the time i don't remember the argument i was making (laughs) Uh, <laughs> that's funny. I also really, it's really amazing to see the spread of the, of the, like the, the spectrum of listeners versus like, versus the YouTube channel, let's say like yeah, podcast podcasting is like such its own kind of unique ecosystem. And it's just cool to like, when someone's like, Oh yeah, like I'm a big fan of the podcast. You're like, Oh, like that's like, that's special to me. Like not that, you know, not being a subscriber to the, not that being a subscriber to our, the YouTube channel isn't special, but like. It just feels, it feels more close with the podcast. Yeah. And especially like I get DMs that are like, Hey man, I fall asleep to your podcast every night, which is like cool, but also like weird that to think that I'm basically like ASMR putting <laughs> yeah, someone yeah, to yeah. sleep. Yeah, you're like, every night. you're like David Attenborough. <laughs> yeah. So thank you very much for listening to our first a hundred episodes and thanks for keeping it juice. Thank you. Yeah, really. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for keeping it juice. Thanks you for guys. keeping it juice, guys. Yeah, honestly, dude, we are <laughs> keeping it juiced and we're keeping it jazzed. Oh, uh, that's a good one too. <laughs> yeah. Keep it jazzed. Keep, keep it, it juiced. Keeping it juiced and jazzed, and uh, we got a really great subject for our hundredth episode. Uh, All right, let's get into our story this week. 
Michael Schumacher was born on January 3rd, 1969, to a bricklayer, Rolf, and his brick house wife, Elizabeth. (laughs) Rolf seemed intent to get young Michael driving as soon as possible and modified his four-year-old's pedal cart with a small motorcycle engine. Parenting in the 70s was very different. Little Michael crashed the cart into a lamppost. Instead of reconsidering their child-rearing abilities, his parents took him to the karting track at Kirpenhorm, where he became the youngest member of the karting club. Papa Rolf built Michael a cart from discarded parts, and Michael won his first club championship at the age of six years old. To afford the lavish lifestyle of kart racing, Papa Rolf took on a second job repairing and renting carts, and Elizabeth worked at the track's canteen. His parents' sacrifices were worth it. A year after he got his license at the tender age of 14, Schumacher won the 1984 German Junior Kart Championship. And as you can imagine, many other kart championships followed. And by 1987, he was the German and European kart champ. Two years later, at age 20, he signed with Willy Weber's WTS Formula 3 team, and Willy became his manager. In 1990, Schumacher joined the Mercedes Junior Racing Program in the World Sports Prototype Championship at the urging of Weber, who believed Schumacher's exposure to press conferences and long-distance races would help his career more than even racing would. He won the season finale in the World Sports Car Championship and finished fifth in the Drivers' Championship despite only driving in three of nine races. Wow. The following year, he again won the season finale at Autopolis in Japan and finished fifth at Le Mans. Perhaps predictably, Formula One came a calling. Michael Schumacher made his Formula One debut with the Jordan Ford team at the 1991 Belgian Grand Prix. He was subbed in for French driver Bertrand Gachot, who was busy being in prison <laughs> for a road rage related Whoa, incident. I don't want to have been serious. Yeah, I mean, if a French guy is getting arrested for road rage, I feel like that's a pretty <laughs> intense yeah. um, event. Schumacher didn't take his position lightly. When his teammate was held up with contract negotiations and wasn't able to take Schumacher around the spa circuit, the young German learned the track on his own by cycling around it on a fold-up bicycle that he brought with him from home. That is not... That's that's an impressive feat because spa is super hilly. A lot of uphill. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He impressed the paddock further by qualifying seventh in the race, which led motorsports journalist Joe Sauer to report that Clumps of German journalists were talking about the best talent since Stefan Beloff. <laughs> Unfortunately, during the race itself, Schumacher was forced to retire the car on the first lap due to clutch problems. Dang. I mean, that's super impressive because the Jordan at that time was not a very good car. So, I mean, you get a young driver in a bad car and he qualifies seventh. It's pretty damn good. That'd be like if... Uh, well, let's say Mick Schumacher, uh, Michael Schumacher's son, got the the Haas in the seventh, you know? Yeah, that seems like impossible right now. Mm-hmm. Following his debut, and despite an agreement between Jordan and Schumacher's management that the driver would stay on the team for the remainder of the season, Schumacher was hired by Benetton Ford for the following race. Jordan was furious and filed an injunction in the UK courts to prevent Schumacher from driving. But, hey, they hadn't signed a final contract and lost the suit. Get it in writing. Schumacher finished his maiden year with four points from six races with his best finish 
a fifth place at the Italian Grand Prix. Not bad. Not start, bad at all. Not bad at all, Nolan. That's right. And at the start of the 1992 season, Schumacher finished third and took his place on the podium for the first time in the Mexican Grand Prix. Nice. nice. He then took his first official victory at the Belgian Grand Prix in a wet race on what he would later call, far and away, his favorite track. That's something that uh, Michael and I have in common. Spa's my favorite F1 track. This win also set him up for his future nickname, Regenmeister, or Rainmaster. (laughs) (laughs) Schumacher ended the 1992 season in an impressive third place in the Drivers' Championship with 53 points, which is very, very impressive for such a young driver. Although 1993 was a decent year for the young driver in which he had one win and nine podium races, it wasn't until 1994 that Schumacher finally secured his driver's championship, becoming the first German in history to do it. Unfortunately, as listeners of the podcast may remember from episode 83, 1994 was a particularly controversial year. There were allegations that several teams, but most importantly Schumacher's Benetton, broke technical regulations. More tragically, Roland Ratzenberger and Ayrton Senna, one of Schumacher's greatest rivals and personal idol, tragically died during the San Marino Grand Prix, an event Schumacher witnessed from directly behind Senna. Sheesh. He probably did, because it didn't look that bad. He probably didn't even know until afterwards. Finally, Schumacher pulled an exceptionally controversial move at the final race of the season, the title-deciding Australian Grand Prix. Williams' Damon Hill was only one point behind Schumacher going into the race, and both were desperate to prove themselves. Michael was in the lead when Hill finally saw a way to pass him. He took the inside line into the corner, but Schumacher turned in, and their cars collided. Schumacher spun out, nearly flipping the Benetton, and Hill was forced to retire his car. If this sounds familiar, pretty much the same thing happened this year at Silverstone between Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton. If, like, social media was around at the time of this incident between Schumacher and Hill, yeah, I think it would have been even more inflammatory. Um, this is, like, one of the most controversial moments in F1 history right here. As I've never seen video of this. Does it look like Schumacher is definitely in the wrong, or what? It's pretty hinky, man. Pretty hinky? Pretty hinky, yeah. Yeah, like Michael Schumacher, it would have been a huge story that Michael Schumacher unfollowed Damon Hill on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) What does does hinky mean? (laughs) You know, like hinky. What does that mean? Joe, do you know this word? Fishy, I think. Yeah, hinky. It's a pretty old-timey word. (laughs) No one probably learned it from his grandpa or something. Yeah, I went, I had a, a lucid dream last night where I had a conversation with my grandpa and it got me back in old man mode. Sorry. Uh, the definition is dishonest or suspect. He knew that oh. guy was hinky. Oh. It's Were you pretty... reading Huck Finn but to, like during our break? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so like Schumacher's ahead. He's probably about a second ahead of Hill or two seconds ahead of Hill, but he goes off the track, pulls back onto the track, Hill is obviously faster, but it's so deliberate that Schumacher turns in front of Hill. And in fact, yeah, he almost does flip his Benetton, and Schumacher crashes into a tire barrier. 
So it's insane that he was able, even able to keep driving, but Hill had to come in because his tire got... <laughs> and they retired the car because the uh, tie rod also got bent. Pretty crazy. Pretty hinky. Dude, that's, that's some hinky stuff. <laughs> uh, Schumacher won his first title, but to many, it didn't feel like a clean victory. It felt like a hinky one. <laughs> nice. Determined to prove himself once more, Schumacher entered the 1995 season with a specific kind of determination. He again absolutely crushed the competition, specifically into wet drives (laughs) in Belgium and Hungary. And by the end of the season, after nine first place wins, Schumacher claimed his second driver's championship. And this time it wasn't hinky. (laughs) (laughs) It was wet, though. It was wet. In 1996, Schumacher joined Ferrari, who hadn't won the Drivers' Championship since 1979 and the Constructors' Championship since 1983. Michael said he left Benetton due to their actions in 1994, but I bet a contracted salary of $60 million over two years didn't hurt either. Though many doubted Ferrari, to the extent that their pit crews were a running joke on the paddock, Schumacher declared the Ferrari 412T was good enough to win the championship. And you know what, guys? He almost did. He finished the season in third for the Drivers' Championship and helped Ferrari clinch second place in the Constructors' Championship. Nice. Schumacher, along with Ross Braun, Rory Byrne, and Jean Tott, have been credited with transforming the Ferrari team. Most people who worked with Schumacher echo this same sentiment. Schumacher was extremely popular on the paddock and seemed to possess an innate ability to galvanize the team around him. Although he was considered stern and a bit cold in interviews, so German, (laughs) Schumacher was known for being a kind and thoughtful teammate. Take this quote from Ross Braun, for example. Schumacher was quite a misunderstood character. I don't know if inside he liked the impression he created because he was an intimidating character. But personally, he was the opposite. (laughs) Very charming. And a very, very sweet little personal puppy. (laughs) One of the softest boys I ever knew. Weird. Is Fat Bastard running this team? In our huge studio? I don't know. I wouldn't. Maybe he's in one of our many, many toilets. (laughs) Our studio has 18 bathrooms, FYI. It's flushing constantly. We have to hold for flush. (laughs) According to Sabine Kem, away from the track, Michael is a laid-back, relaxed guy. He's much less of a perfectionist. He's patient. He's devoted to his family and is a sensitive man. On the track, he is an absolute fighter. But that is more or less gone as soon as he gets out of the car. By the time 1997 rolled around, Ferrari was in a great spot to win its first driver's championship in 18 years. Schumacher and Jacques Villeneuve of Williams were in direct competition, with Villeneuve leading the way in the early part of the season. However, Schumacher took the championship lead by mid-season and entered the Spanish Grand Prix, the final of the season, with a one-point advantage. Does this sound familiar? Unfortunately, towards the end of the Spanish Grand Prix, Schumacher's car suffered a coolant leak, and it seemed like he'd have to retire the car. As Villeneuve attempted to pass Schumacher, the German attempted to provoke an accident, but ended up spinning out as his rival drove on to finish third. 
The FIA determined that Schumacher deliberately tried to ram Villeneuve, and he was disqualified from the driver's championship. So, I mean, there's a lot of similarities between him and Max because Max is very competitive and, you know, kind of blurs the line between um, what's legal or what he needs to do at that moment to be winner. Uh, you know, Max hasn't been uh, found guilty of trying to ram anybody. Uh, I don't know I would about say that. that. I saw a compilation. <laughs> Schumacher, I would still say, is the more competitive of the two guys. But, um, you know, also the perception that we have of these drivers uh, is also fueled a lot by the British commentary on the races. You know, they're very, you know, they're going to support their, their, their guy. Maybe Hamilton. yours is. Maybe yours is. Oh, is Joe watching Spanish dubbed commentary or the I can't Dutch speak broadcast? For Joe. I'm, talk- I'm talking about myself. I don't even watch the races. These are based on my personal relationships with all these men. <laughs> 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 I party with these dudes, man. I party with these guys. Yeah. And I know. I've seen the real Max. Yeah. For stopping. Yeah. I feel like Max gets to your house party and then he's like, is that a simulator over there? I'm going to go like check yeah. that out. Oh, for sure. That's He's that guy. Uh, I got two words to <laughs> describe Max Verstappen. All right. Yeah. Greedy guts. Oh, I thought. Oh, greedy guts. Whoa. Yeah. What is he eats all the snacks? Whoa, dude. <laughs> you didn't hear it from me, man. But that guy loves. I a did hear it from out. you. <laughs> that guy loves a snack tray. That guy loves a cheese plate. Here comes. Old greedy guts. Oh, for no. <laughs> we'll get back to more past gas, but right now, a word from our sponsors. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. In 1998, Schumacher nearly regained his title, but lost out in the final two races to McLaren's Mika Hakkinen. Then, in 1999, Schumacher lost his chance to win the Drivers' Championship at the British Grand Prix when his car's rear brake failed and sent him careening off the track. He suffered a broken leg and was out of the driver's seat for 98 days, but came back for the Malaysian Grand Prix and qualified at pole position by nearly a second. My goodness. Mika Hakkinen, the opponent Schumacher supposedly respected the most, ended up winning the Drivers' Championship that year. However, largely due to Schumacher's help, Ferrari finally clinched its first Constructors' Championship in 16 years. We could dig into Schumacher's remaining Ferrari years deeply, but to save some time, we'll just say that from 2000 to 2004, Schumacher won more races and championships than any other driver in history of the sport until Lewis Hamilton beat his record in 2020. Here are some of the highlights. In 2000, he equaled the number of wins, 41, by his former rival and hero, Ayrton Senna, and broke down in tears. That same year, he finally won his third championship. In 2001, Schumacher took his fourth title. Some season highlights include the Canadian Grand Prix, where Schumacher finished second to his brother, Ralph, scoring the first ever 1-2 finish by brothers in Formula One. 
Schumacher also scored his 52nd career win during the Belgian Grand Prix, breaking Alan Prost's record for most career wins. Unfortunately, though, controversy once again came calling in 2002, when he retained his championship on the back of his teammate, Rubens Barrichello, who the team ordered to slow down to allow Schumacher the win, and thus, the title. In 2003, Schumacher broke Juan Manuel Fangio's record of five World Drivers' Championships by winning for the sixth time, and finally in 2004, he set a brand new record of seven drivers' titles, which has recently been matched by Lewis Hamilton. In 2005, the rule changes for the season were more or less an effort to disrupt Ferrari's dominance, and Renault's Fernando Alonso took over as champion. Schumacher was quoted, quote, It's like trying to fight with a blunted weapon. If your weapons are weak, you don't have a chance. In 2006, the last of Schumacher's Ferrari career, he surpassed another one of Senna's records with 66 pole positions. Despite ending the season on the podium for the Italian Grand Prix, Ferrari announced that Schumacher had decided to retire. However, it was quickly revealed that he would continue to work for Ferrari as assistant to the newly appointed CEO Jean Tot which would allow Schumacher to work in development and select the team's future drivers. Around this time, Nicky Lauda and David Couthard, among others, proclaimed Schumacher as the greatest all-around racing driver in the history of the sport. So at this point in the story, Schumacher was retired, but he was hardly headed to a beach in Mexico, where everyone goes when they retire. 2007, Schumacher became Ferrari's advisor and Jean Tot's super assistant, in quotes, which I think they were trying to make it sound like a more of a big boy title, but they made it sound a lot like a little kid title. <laughs> That's like uh, one of those like classroom jobs that you have to rotate yeah. through like every week. Oh, yeah. crap. I have to be Mrs. C's super assistant this week. Yeah. You can be my super assistant. Executive vice assistant. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what is this position? Well, as Tot put it, he'll be very close to us while he won't have any particular obligation to be present neither in the factory nor at the races nor at private tests. He'll be an indispensable interface in the process of making decisions for the future of Ferrari's sporting arm. Finally, as he's done up to now, he will make his contribution on the definition of the road cars. That's kind of like what I do at Donut. <laughs> You're a very oh. special assistant at Donut. <laughs> I'm Matt and Jesse's a super assistant. Uh, or as Schumacher put it, I don't think right now there's any need to specify in concrete terms exactly how or what I will do. I'm very happy to be involved in this way, but I look forward, first of all, to get some rest for a few months, and then I'll have a much clearer view on what I'd like to have. <laughs> I mean, then oh. just solidify it when you come back to work. Like, yeah. <laughs> figure it out then. As it turned out, it seemed like it was a mix of both descriptions. So I don't... Okay, sure. <laughs> Schumacher spent his final super assistant <laughs> year uh, focused on testing electronics and tires for the 2008 season and assisting in the development program. In 2008, he helped develop a Ferrari road car. Schumacher is also responsible for Ferrari's decision to hire Kimi Raikkonen to replace him, which is pretty mm. on point considering their shared distaste for interviews and their general over-it demeanors. In 2008, while he worked with Ferrari, Schumacher also began competing in low-level motorcycle races in the IDM Superbike Series. Despite his interest in motorcycles, 
He claimed he did not intend to start a new kind of sporting career, though he absolutely loved the feeling of being on a Ducati. Can you imagine you're like at a lower level, like kind of like pro-am racing event. And you're like, all right, man, I feel like pretty good. And then like Michael Schumacher rolls up next to you. Yeah. The guy who Nikki Lauda was like, yeah, he's like the best. He's the best race car driver. Yeah, ever. yeah. <laughs> and you're like, all right, yeah, he's a race car driver, but like, I'm pretty good on this bike, dude. Um, yeah. And then he just smokes you. Around the same time he was experimenting with motorbikes, Schumacher helped to develop the first lightweight carbon helmet with Schuberth, a German company whose helmets he wore throughout his F1 career. According to Motor One report, the extremely lightweight and aerodynamic helmet is packed with technical and safety innovations because there simply is no room for error. Or as Schumacher put it, attention to detail has always been particularly important to me and I don't intend to leave anything to chance in the future either. <laughs> However, Schumacher was not built for his so-called retirement. In 2009, Ferrari driver Felipe Massa was seriously injured during the Hungarian Grand Prix and Schumacher was chosen to be his replacement at the next race. However, complications from a motorcycle injury earlier that year prevented Schumacher from getting a clean bill of health to compete. Despite this setback, his passion for racing was reawakened. Ooh. Schumacher decided to return to Formula One for the 2010 season alongside Nico Rosberg on the new Mercedes GP team. As we've mentioned, his preparations to replace Massa for Ferrari reignited his passion for the sport, which combined with a long-held ambition to drive for Mercedes and work with team principal Ross Braun led him to accept their offer. Fortunately, he passed his physical exams and he was ready to go. Let's go! Let's go! Oh, man. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> There's going to be like 90-year-old guys in 50 <laughs> years that are still doing that with like face tattoos. Sheesh. And their dentures fall Oh, out. let's go. Sheesh. <laughs> Schumacher's first season back was relatively unremarkable, especially since it was the first year since his debut in 1991 that he finished without a win, pole position, podium, or even fastest lap. According to GrandPrix.com, the Mercedes MGP W01 possessed an inherent understeer exacerbated by the narrow front tires introduced for the season. Though they later adjusted the cars, Schumacher still finished the season in ninth place with 72 points. Not bad, you know, come back from retirement, still finished top 10. Okay. In 2011, Schumacher fared a little bit better and marked the 20th anniversary of his Formula One debut in Belgium by moving up from last on the grid to fifth place. Hell yeah. He became the oldest driver to lead a race in the Japanese Grand Prix since Jack Brabham in 1970 and eventually finished the season in eighth place this time around. By 2012, Mercedes could sense his indecision about his place on the grid. Both he and the team decided that it would be his final season in Formula One. At the European Grand Prix, Schumacher finished third in the race, his first podium since his return, and became the oldest driver to achieve a podium at 43 years and 173 days. Schumacher ended his epic F1 run by setting the fastest lap in Germany for the 77th time in his career, 
and then became the second driver in history to race in 300 Grand Prix. Wow. When he retired, his seat was taken over by Lewis Hamilton. Fitting. Yeah, very fitting. It is strange to uh, watch these older seasons back and see, uh, see Schumacher in the silver Mercedes car. He's got a red helmet. Um, especially confusing because Mercedes was on the grid at the same time as Mercedes McLaren, which is McLaren. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, yeah. So this, this time period, even though it wasn't, uh, too successful for Schumacher was laying the groundwork for, uh, Lewis to pretty much go on his absolutely dominating run as we've seen in the past, um, almost 10 years now. Did he, de- did he help develop the car that Lewis drove? Um, I, you know, I'm not sure because the rule change came in in 2014 mm-hmm. um, with the uh, the hybrid cars. And uh, speaking of which, uh, Hamilton made the switch from the Mercedes McLaren team where he had won two titles and then jumped into the Mercedes Grand Prix team, which is now the proper Mercedes team right now. So I'm not sure if it's the car itself was developed, James, because the car mm-hmm. has also gone through many iterations over the past decade, but like just probably the groundwork for the um the 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 team workflows and mm-hmm. everything like that driver development also the braun gp was the team that became this team i believe uh yeah yeah so i mean ross braun really laid the groundwork as well it was ross braun and schumacher oh you um, mean fat bastard yeah uh, laying the groundwork for lewis's historic run that we're seeing right now We'll be right back with more of this story, but first, a word from our sponsors. The sheer magnitude of Schumacher's legacy cannot be overstated. Aside from his record-breaking moments on the grid, Schumacher made an enormous impact on the world of motorsport. For example, Formula One was considered a fringe sport in Germany, and by the time he retired in 2006, three of the top ten drivers were German. More than any other nationality and more than have ever been present in Formula One history. Sebastian Vettel felt Schumacher was the key in him becoming a Formula One driver. Wow. Schumacher is also credited with pioneering a fitness regime for drivers. And good thing, too, because they used to be fat. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Drivers need muscle strength in their necks, core, and legs in order to stand up to driving at speeds of 220 miles per hour. Senna pushed the importance of staying fit, but Schumacher drove it home and made it a regular practice for drivers. According to an article by Will Gray for Eurosport, Schumacher spent hours in the gym honing himself into a lean, light, and strong performance athlete with a combination of endurance training and core strength exercises. He set the standard for young drivers coming up through the ranks. He saw physical fitness as integral to being a perfect driver. By 2004, Schumacher was the highest paid athlete in the world. Whoa. And the following year, he became the world's first billionaire athlete. Whoa. Hmm. And the success isn't just monetary. He's won so many awards and earned so much recognition that listing off his achievements could make up a whole other episode. So we'll keep it brief. In 2020, Schumacher was voted the most influential person in F1 history by sports fans. Not bad for a bricklayer's son. Not bad for the son of a bricklayer and a 
brick house. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, Schumacher is known for more than just his achievements at the time of this recording. On December 29th, 2013, while he was skiing with his son Mick, who is currently driving for Haas, he fell and hit his head on a rock while crossing an unsecured backcountry area in the French Alps. Despite wearing a helmet, which his physicians later said saved his life, Schumacher suffered a traumatic brain injury and was placed into a medically induced coma for six months. Mm. He then spent four months in a hospital in Switzerland until he was well enough to return home in September 2014. Though his status is ultimately unknown, reports indicate that he is paralyzed, struggles to communicate, and has memory problems. Updates over the last seven years have been few and far between, uh, most likely due to his emphasis on personal privacy. According to his ghostwriter, Sabine Kem, if Michael is racing, then he's 100% racing. And in private, he's 100% private. It's clearly divided. Thus, his current status is somewhat unknown. But as of November 2020, it's been said that his condition continues to improve, albeit slowly. Wow. <sighs> I mean, I think it's obviously privacy is for the better, man. Like, well, when you're such like an icon like that, you know, like I'm sure, you know, both like your family and yourself, if you're able to like make decisions, like you don't want people to see you mm-hmm. not as you were, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. even if he is the goat, Michael Schumacher is so much more than that. Not only was he a massive record breaker and setter, and kind of a shitster every now and then, but he's also a renowned philanthropist. Schumacher is a special ambassador to UNESCO and has donated 1.5 million pounds to the organization. He also paid for the construction of a school in uh, Dakar, Senegal, and supports a hospital for child victims of war in Sarajevo. In Lima, Peru, he funded the Palace for the Poor, which helps homeless children earn an education, clothing, food, medical attention, and shelter. And outside of his work with underprivileged children, Schumacher supports international campaigns to recognize road deaths as a major global health issue. When asked about his charitable works, Schumacher said, quote, It's great if you can use your fame and the power your fame gives you to draw attention to things that really matter. He is also a family man, someone who kept his private life private, and there's something admirable about that in a world obsessed with celebrity. Perhaps we'll find out a bit more about him on a personal level, and certainly his health status, when a new Netflix documentary, the first one ever approved by his family, premieres on September 15th. But for now, we can appreciate him as a truly talented driver. I'll put it on my list. So, is he the GOAT? Let's put it this way. Michael Schumacher was known for his perfectionist drive to win, possessed the ability to produce fast laps at pivotal race moments, and could push a car to its limits for sustained periods. We know the obvious comparison is to Lewis Hamilton, who, in all fairness, is crushing many of Schumacher's records. But if Schumacher was that great back then, just imagine what he could have accomplished in today's cars. So, gentlemen, what do you think? I mean, his record speaks for itself. I think, uh, you know, Schumacher, obvious icon. I mean, there's a reason we chose him for our 100th episode. I don't think that can be uh, discounted. But if we're looking at, if we just look at pure stats, you know, with Lewis breaking all of his records, you know, at some point someone's going to break Lewis's records as well. Yeah. You know, it's a thing. These are things that these are these sort of titles and stats stand for a long time. And then someone comes along and 
breaks them. You know, that's a, a cycle of sports. I think the whole goat talk of, as of recent is kind of misleading because like people are still comparing modern players to like records that were held in 1884. And it's like, mm-hmm. that was a different game back then. Um, people didn't care so much about fitness like they probably drank beer. Yeah, and you want to talk out. about fat guy? You want to talk about fat guys? Yeah, look at Babe Ruth. He <laughs> looks insane compared to like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like Aaron Judge, who's like six foot like, seven and is like a prototype human. <laughs> yeah, they were they were like drinking beer and smoking cigarettes in the dugout. Yeah, it's like why? Who is keeping records? Who the guy? The guy who is keeping records is also drinking beer and smoking cigarettes. <laughs> and like even more recently, like. You know, the comparison to, you know, Jordan or LeBron or whoever. Yeah. A lot of people make the argument that Jordan didn't have to play against anybody, really. Yeah. And that was a, it was a different game back then. Like, it was more physical. People were getting messed up on the court. Yeah. If you like can't tell, I don't know what stuff. I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but now everybody in the NBA is an all-star. Mm-hmm. Everyone's a special assistant in the NBA now. <laughs> Everyone's a super assistant, yeah. <laughs> no, but I think, um, I don't know, icon for sure. Yeah, I think he's great. Uh, I don't want to demean anything, but uh, it seems like he's he's got that special something that makes him one of the best that's ever going to race, you know? Mm-hmm. You can tell mm-hmm. if someone has it or if they don't. And he was in Cars, so... Like, what's his name? Michael Schumacher or yeah. something like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. At the end of Cars One, he visits uh, Guido's tire shop, and Guido's like, "Yes, hey, he's a Michael Schumacher," and then faints. Oh yeah his his name was Michael <laughs> his name was Michael Wheelmacher. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I guess that settles it, really. That. No, <laughs> yeah. I don't think nope, we're gonna nope. need it, guys. I think that's a good place <laughs> to end. But that's how you close out a hundred. That's how you do it <laughs> yeah. with a very uh, just on the nose pun. Thank you guys for listening. One hundred episodes. Wow. Yeah. If you if you have any suggestions or want us to talk about any particular subject, email us at passgas at donutmedia.com. Let us know if you think Schumacher is the F1 goat. You think, you know, you hear a lot about goats recently. Is he the goat? <laughs> Let us know what your favorite episode of the show has been so far. Uh, and thank you for tuning in for all 100 episodes. Yeah. I want to thank my co-host, James Pumphrey, at James Pumphrey. Keep it cool. <laughs> keep it keep it going. <laughs> uh, and Nolan, at Nolan J. Sykes. Thank you. And Joe at Joe G. Weber. Follow us all if you'd like. Um, yeah, man. I- oh, yeah. Oh, it's big thanks to our uh, our director, Tommy, and our producer, Gavin. And shout out yes. to Bridget because she was uh, there for a lot yeah. of these episodes. Shout out to Kanan. Shout out oh, to yeah. um, Christina who wrote Sh- this episode. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Carlos. Yes. Thank you, everybody who's supported the show. Thank you, everyone who's worked on the show. And um, thank you to you for listening. Yeah, most of all, thank you to you guys. Like all those guys and us could probably be replaced 
Uh, <laughs> but the collective you is the only reason that this podcast exists. That's True. right. So thank you very much. And we'll see you next week on Past Gas. Be kind. Go get it. Go out there and get it, guys. And keep it juiced. Be the goat of your own life. <laughs> Be the goat of your own life. <laughs> yeah, that's right. All right. See you next time. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.